Well, God designed us with really fascinating and complex developmental process. We start off as small and helpless infants, but over the course of 18 to 20 years or so, our bodies and brains grow and develop and mature into adulthood. Sometimes, however, in this cursed world, things go wrong. Lakshmi Yadav was born in India with a rare genetic condition where her body doesn't produce the natural growth hormones that are meant to take us from childhood into adulthood. So she's now 20 years old, but she's trapped in the body of a five-year-old. So when she stopped growing, and so she clocks in at three feet, three inches tall, her mind kept developing, so she has the mind of an adult, just the body of a child. So all of her friends around her grew, and they're now into mature adulthood, but she is not. It's a tragic condition. The only good thing about it is that it's extremely rare. But what a burden to bear to have to deal with just this perpetual physical immaturity. There's another condition we can speak of that's also tragic but not rare, and that is spiritual immaturity. Physically, we're meant to mature from childhood to adulthood. We should come to bear the marks of maturity. And if you don't, I mean, something has drastically gone wrong. And the same is true spiritually. As a Christian, everyone starts off as an infant in Christ. And that's only natural. But it's also only natural and expected that over time you grow and you develop and you mature in the faith. But this often doesn't happen. There are countless cases of people who have come to faith in Christ, but then they never grow. They don't mature. Their faith remains weak and fragile. And they don't bear much fruit. This is a big problem. And it means, likewise, something has gone drastically wrong. And such spiritual immaturity also comes with consequences. And the Bible teaches the way of the wicked is hard. And that life outside of Christ, when you're ruled by the flesh, it's not good. And it leads to a crop of bad fruit. Like immorality, impurity, strife, anger, violence, division. The list goes on. And the result is just trouble and suffering in life, most of which we're bringing on ourselves by the way we're living. But when you come to Christ, things should change. You're forgiven of your sins. You're given a new heart. It does not mean you're you're perfect on day one in practice or all your troubles go away. But, you know, as you grow and mature, you seek the Lord. You're you're living by the Spirit, not the flesh. Things should change, right? You, You should see growth and development in your spiritual life. And that should lead to another kind of fruit being born in your life, the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Your life should change and your life should get better. That leads to a blessed life that honors God. And I trust that's what you want. But again, it, it just doesn't always happen. There are some Christians who, look, they've been in the church 10, 20 30 years, they haven't grown. They haven't matured. All these years in Christ, they should be drastically different, but they're not. And so they're still bearing a lot of consequences of that in their life. So what do we make of this? What do we make of people who've been in the church 30 years? They still can't navigate the Bible because they never read it. It doesn't help that they're under cotton candy preaching that neither instructs nor challenges them. They, they still can barely explain the gospel, and they for sure have no idea how Christians are meant to like grow. They're, they're clueless, they're ignorant, and sadly, they're, they're suffering the consequences of that in their life. 
This tragedy unfolds further because there's another unforeseen byproduct of this type of immaturity. They come to demote Christ. In their minds, Christ and the gospel are great for the past. That's their ticket out of hell. And they're great for the future. That's their ticket into heaven. But they have no idea of how Christ and the gospel are meant to change our lives in the present. How does Jesus impact my daily life? You know, what does the gospel have to do with how you treat your spouse, how you raise your kids, how you act at work, what you say, where you go on vacation, your retirement choices? Just the, the list goes on. For many Christians, in their mind, Jesus and the gospel have nothing to do with all like the practical matters of life. You're just kind of on your own. But Christ, I mean, he's irrelevant to most of life. And so as life goes on and their problems persist, they fail to see the value of Christ. Yeah, they'll still believe because they don't want to go to hell, but, you know, they've been in church for 30 years. They still have all these problems in life. They look at their non-believing friends. They seem better off. So really, you know, what good is Christianity for this life? It may be great for the next life, but what's, what does it do for this life? And to them, Christ is not the answer. This leads to them, for, for many, to downgrade Christ in their hearts. This Christ and his gospel, they're not sufficient. It's not enough. This whole religion thing is not working for them. They need something more than Jesus. Often they turn to the world for help, for hope, for answers. And this sad downward spiral continues. And for some, in time, they become Christian in title only. And some even just fall away from the faith. Because in their mind, Jesus failed them. He didn't do anything for them. This is tragic. Largely because it's, it's so wrong and it, it doesn't have to happen. Such Christians suffer from a, a fatal ignorance and immaturity. And if they only knew that there really is power in Christ and his gospel. It's meant to give you hope and help to change and grow, not just in the next life, but also in this life right now. And Christ is sufficient for all the problems of life. His word has answers. Christ is sufficient. Yet this tragedy is still being played out in many churches. It ought not be this way. All Christians need to be fed the pure milk of the word that they might be convinced of the sufficiency of Christ and his word for all matters of life and godliness. They need to be equipped with the full knowledge of his will in all respects that they would turn to him for help and for hope. He is our only hope. Only in Christ are we going to find a new life that honors God and blesses others. It's something that we need to learn. and You need to learn it now. We don't want to put that lesson off. And thankfully, we're going to learn that because that's the core message behind the book of the Bible, Colossians, which we begin right now. So you can open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. It's not first Colossians, as someone told me, there's a typo in the bulletin that there's no second Colossians, so I guess it's not, it's not inaccurate, this is first Colossians, it's just, there's, nothing comes after it. But you can open to Colossians chapter 1. We begin today our verse-by-verse exposition through this book of the Bible. Colossians is pretty short, but that does not mean it is unimportant. Rather, this little letter has a weight disproportionate to its size. 
It's composed of four short chapters. Yeah, but each is like, like a granite slab on top of which the, the foundation of a lot of theology and practice are built. No book of the Bible so succinctly yet poignantly captures Christian living and the means to maturity as Colossians. And certainly no book of the Bible connects our maturity to Christ himself. Just as the body cannot grow without the head, so there's no spiritual growth detached from Christ. But he is more than sufficient for all we need. And so no other book of the Bible captures the sufficiency of Christ for all of our spiritual needs. All of your problems in life have answers in Christ. It's just time for you to grow up. It's time for you to move beyond infancy to maturity in Christ. Like, what's this whole faith thing about? Got figured out sooner or later. Colossians helps with that. It really does help, and we will learn a lot as we go through it. Our time this morning, however, will merely be introduction. We need to first get acquainted with this book of the Bible. And Colossians, like most letters in Scripture, it was purely an occasional letter which meant it was written by a specific person to a specific group for a specific reason. That does not mean it does not apply to us today. God's word is timeless. And Colossians actually is one of the books that helps establish the universal authority of the New Testament for all the churches. This still applies, and you're going to see how incredibly relevant Colossians is to Christian living today. However, God in his wisdom chose to transmit his word in a cultural context and setting. And so if we're going to rightly understand and grasp God's word today, we need to understand its original setting and background. And so our goal for this morning is simply to transport you all back 2,000 years and just help you understand the original occasion for Colossians. Who wrote it? To whom was it written? Why was it written? How does it relate to today? We're going to be introduced. And for this, we're going to use the first two verses of Colossians 1 to serve as that introduction. These verses are really a customary greeting, but they they double as a suitable springboard for us to explore the background of Colossians. It's a bit cliche, but we'll go with a typical outline for these introductory studies. It just gets the essence of the letter And so we'll aim to find the author, the audience, and the aim of Colossians. But like I trust this background will pay dividends as we start going through this verse by verse. So let's begin with number one, the author. The author. Look at verse one of Colossians 1. He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. So, Colossians was written by the Apostle Paul. This is affirmed by the early church who accepted Paul's authorship without question. And Paul actually three times references his authorship in this letter. And it's corroborated by many personal details he shares. The most important detail he mentions in Colossians was his imprisonment. For example, the very last verse of Colossians 4.18, he says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment. Grace be with you. So we know that Paul writes this letter from prison. And we don't have time to go into all the details. 
But suffice it to say, we're going to go with the majority of scholars who agree that Paul wrote this letter during his first Roman imprisonment. First Roman imprisonment. After his missionary journeys, Paul was seized by the Jews in Jerusalem who wanted to kill him. He was then kind of captured by the Romans. They held him while he was awaiting trial. He was transferred to Caesarea and he waited in custody in Caesarea for two years to stand trial. Now they were going to transfer him back to Jerusalem, but Paul knew the Jews had a plot to assassinate him. So he very shrewdly took advantage of his Roman citizenship and he appealed to Caesar. And that meant he would be transferred not back to Jerusalem, but to Rome to stand trial before Caesar himself. And so he did. He was. He, he arrives in Rome after suffering a, a deadly shipwreck, shipwreck. And there in Rome, he was imprisoned for another two years, just waiting to stand trial before Caesar. And so this is what we refer to as Paul's first Roman imprisonment. Now, this first time around, it's not like he was in a dungeon. This is more like a house arrest. Acts 28, 16 says he was allowed to stay by himself, though he would have been chained to a Roman guard 24-7. He received visitors, and he still had the freedom to preach the gospel. In the book of Acts, which records all this, is just basically Acts 23 and following. But the book of Acts ends and says this, Acts 28, 30 and 31, as Paul's in prison, it says, and he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters, and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness, unhindered. And that's the end of the book of Acts. And I think it really showcases the sovereign hand of God at work to start and build his church. I mean, ordinarily, you would think, like Paul, he's, he's the great apostle. He's writing half the New Testament. He's doing so much missionary work for Paul to be imprisoned for really two and then two more years, that's like a worst case scenario. How's the church going to get started if, if the chief apostle is just stuck in Rome waiting? This seems like a disaster. But God ordered it such that Paul would actually have a safe haven to preach the gospel unhindered in Rome, the capital of the world, for two full years. God was using this per his plan. To his advantage. It just goes to show that there's no imprisoning the gospel. That the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And so long as it goes out, lives will be transformed. And Paul attests to this in Colossians, actually. He mentions the hope they have laid up in heaven. And then he says this look at chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. You know, speaking of this hope, he says, Of which you previously heard in the word of truth. The gospel, which came to you, just as in all the world also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also, since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. And Paul's saying this in prison, but he knows that there's no stopping the spread of the gospel. And Christ is going to build his church. And whenever the saving message of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ go out, well, God uses it to give new life. So Paul's first Roman imprisonment is no hindrance at all. Now in Rome, the gospel was still going out and people were coming to new life. 
And this, in fact, was Christ's specific plan for Paul. You know, way back before he was arrested in Jerusalem, did you know that the Lord visited him another time and spoke to him? This is recorded in Acts 23, verse 11. It says, but on the night immediately following, the Lord stood at his side and said, take courage. For as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. So you see, Paul's life and his apostleship was all just part of the plan of God. Christ had a specific mission for Paul, and he, he wanted him exactly there in Rome, despite being in prison for two years. So back to Colossians 1, it's not insignificant that Paul introduces himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, he says, by the will of God. He truly was an apostle by God's will. Apostle, of course, is a title given to a select few men who were specifically called and commissioned by the risen Lord himself. They were to be the Lord's representatives on earth, giving God's word and will to the new church. The Lord, in fact, used the apostles to record the inspired New Testament writings. What sets the New Testament books apart, in fact, is that they all bear the marks of apostolic authority. This is what gives these writings authority over all the churches. God was going to use the apostles and prophets to lay the foundation of the church. Christ is the cornerstone, and these apostles would be the foundation on which the rest of the church would be built, largely through giving the church the word, the New Testament. So this is why, although, look, we're not the Colossian church, but Colossians is still God's word to us. And this is also why Paul can speak authoritatively to the Colossian church, despite the fact that he'd never been there, as we'll learn. And this also explains what Paul says at the end of Colossians. Look forward to chapter 4, verse 16, where with his apostolic authority, he says this in 4.16, when this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and you, for your part, Read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. You see how the Lord intended the inspired writings of the apostles to have authority over all the churches. And so it goes for all the New Testament letters. So thinking about Paul, we realize his life was not his own. His conversion was not his own. His apostleship was not his own. And his writings were not his own. This all comes by the will of God. This is just Christ building his church. So the fact that Paul writes this letter from prison, no, it's of no concern. That's just God working out his will for his kingdom through his servants. And for us ourselves, it's, it's our joy and privilege to be a part of that, even if we are made to suffer for his name's sake. Because after all, if you are in Christ by faith, you're dead. You've already died. Your life now belongs to him. You've been redeemed. You've been bought with a price. And so you and I, we just live now to serve him. And so you should live your life for his glory, to spread his kingdom, to magnify his name, and not your own. Now here in Colossians, back to chapter 1, you see that Paul was not alone. He also references Timothy, our brother. 
Timothy was Paul's right-hand man, his child in the faith. He accompanied Paul on many of his missionary travels and is represented in many of Paul's writings, as I'm sure you know. And Timothy is the epitome of a faithful servant. And here he's made his way to Rome to continue that service to and, and with Paul. And almost surely, Timothy functioned as Paul's man on the outside. He's the one that could make arrangements for Paul to still have a gospel witness despite being in shackles. And we'll, we'll see that unfold as time goes on. All right, I think that's enough about the author. Let's move on and, and be introduced to the audience. So number two, the audience. Look at verse 2 here in Colossians chapter 1. Verse 2, he says, Now to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae. This letter was written, he says, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ. And that does not refer to two distinct groups, as if, you know, some Christians are saints and others aren't. No, both terms all refer to just all those in Christ. The term saints simply means holy ones, the set-apart ones. And all those in Christ have been set apart unto him. All believers are saints by calling. Likewise, all our brethren, when you're united to Christ, the head, so you're united to his body. And so you enter the family of God, you gain a bunch of new brothers and sisters in the Lord. What really sets all Christians apart, though, is their status of being in Christ, and that's a technical term in the New Testament, in Christ. In fact, literally verse 2 reads, to the holy and faithful brothers in Colossae, in Christ. In Colossae, in Christ. You know, as Christians now, we all belong to two realms. We have two territories, two countries of which we are citizens. One earthly, one heavenly. We live in this age, we're bound to a nation or a country or a people but our heavenly citizenship is what defines us now. So we may be Roman or Colossian or American. But above all, we're Christian. That is what determines how we live in this world. Our citizenship primarily now is in heaven. And our privileged position in Christ is what dictates everything else about our lives. And you're going to see that concept fleshed out in Colossians. This concept of being in Christ. The notion of our union to Christ. That's the fountainhead from which all the blessings of salvation flow. And uh, suffice it to say, we'll learn a lot more about what it means to be united to Christ. Now, speaking of the earthly realm, though, these Christians happen to live in Colossae. Colossae was a city in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. There's a major river there called the Meander River, known for its winding, snaking path. That's where we get the word meander from. And the Lycus River is a little branch of the meander, and it feeds this narrow valley. And in that valley were three major cities in the ancient world. Laodicea, Hierapolis, and 10 miles to the east, Colossae. Once upon a time, Colossae was a city of great size and importance. Back during the Greek and the Persian empires, Colossae was a major city. It was known for its textile industry and its export of this very fine, dark red wool. And Colossae sat at a major intersection 
between a north and south highway and an east and west highway, and so that contributed to its rise. However, that north and south highway was later rerouted through Laodicea, and that led Colossae to shrink and to just kind of fade away. I mean, just think about the small towns that lined Route 66 in America, and you know that during the 50s and the 60s, these major highways were built that connected major cities directly, and so now it's just, it's slow and inconvenient to take Route 66, so all those little towns, they lost their commerce, they lost their tourism, and they just faded away. And that's in part what happened to Colossae after this move, it just shrunk down It was no longer a major city. Laodicea became the major city in the region. And that probably explains why in Revelation 2 and 3, you know where Jesus gives this message to the seven churches? All seven of those churches are churches of Asia Minor, and they're all major cities. The last on his list is not Colossae, it's Laodicea, even though they were very close together. Now, Paul himself, he mostly focused on major population centers in his ministry travels. He's going to Ephesus, Corinth, Athens, Rome. All this goes to say, of all the destinations, of all of Paul's letters, Colossians is probably the least significant. But don't let that fool you, because the contents of this letter prove vastly important. And churches like ours can take familiar... Uh, some encouragement from this, because you might be, you know, small and insignificant compared to a megachurch, but that doesn't mean God cannot use you mightily in his kingdom program. Now, I mentioned Paul stuck to major city centers, so it's not surprising to learn that he never visited Colossae during his missionary travels. just wasn't worth his time, I guess, so small. And when he writes this letter, he had never been there, and that also means that Paul did not found this church. So who did? That honor belongs to one named Epaphras. Epaphras. On Paul's third missionary journey, he winds up in Ephesus and he stays there for over two years. Ephesus is about 100 miles west on the coast of Asia Minor. And during that time, it says people from all over Asia Minor, they came to Ephesus just to hear Paul. So he didn't have to go visit every small town. They, they all were coming to him. Acts 19, verse 10 confirms this. It says, this took place for two years. So that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So we don't know this for certain, but most likely this guy Epaphras is one of those guys who had found himself in Ephesus. He hears this guy Paul preach the gospel that, that Jesus really is the Messiah, this, this dead Jewish carpenter. He, he actually was the Messiah, and he rose, and he unpacks the gospel, and Epaphras believes. He's convinced he's converted. He returns home to Colossae. He tells other people about it. The Messiah has come. They believe, and the church of Colossae is born, just, just like that. And Paul confirms this in Colossians 1, verse 7 where he credits Epaphras with being the one who first delivered the gospel to them. And Paul calls him his fellow bondservant and faithful servant of Christ on his behalf. And so Epaphras really became an extension of Paul's gospel ministry. But there was trouble stirring on the horizon for the Colossian church. 
And so we learn that Epaphras, he leaves Colossae, he travels to Rome to seek out Paul. He's going to minister to them, to Paul. He's informing Paul of, you know, what's going on in the Colossian church. Like it says in chapter 1, verse 8, he informs Paul of, of their love in the Spirit. And you really see in Epaphras, a shepherd's heart, he's very concerned for the sheep in Colossae, and he's seeking out Paul for shepherding reasons, which we'll see. But look at four, chapter 4, 12 and 13, where Paul says of him later, he says, Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bondslave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfectly and fully assured in the will of God. For I testify for him that he is a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. It's really Epaphras became the, the representative, the, the go-to for those three cities in that Lycus River Valley. But this time though, Epaphras, he's gone to Paul. He's not coming back though. It's kind of unexpected, but Epaphras is not returning to them. Again, we don't know for certain, but it appears that Epaphras may have himself been imprisoned at this time. Over in Philemon verse 23, Paul calls Epaphras his fellow prisoner. And Paul wrote Colossians, Ephesians, and Philemon back to back to back in that Roman imprisonment. Philemon lived in Colossae, by the way. And so these letters, we would expect these three letters to be taken by Epaphras back to the people there. But no, they're, they're going to go back with a man named Tychicus, not Epaphras. We don't know for certain, but whatever it was, something big must have prevented Epaphras from coming back to his people at this time. Now, speaking of Ephesians, we're also going to see how Ephesians and Colossians bear a strong resemblance to one another. They share themes and terms and flow. There's really no doubt Paul wrote them essentially back to back in in prison there. But Colossians is set apart by some of the unique concerns that Paul addresses in it. He's writing these letters sometime around 60 to 62 AD. They're known as the prison epistles. You add Philippians to make four. But again, what sets Colossians apart is the special concern that Paul addresses. And it's probably the main reason Epaphras visited Paul. Some false teaching was stirring on the horizon for the Colossian church. It's starting to influence those in the church. And Epaphras must not, must not have felt equipped to handle it. He just, he needed Paul's help. He needed Paul's authority just to steer the church through this issue. And so let's, let's talk about this concern now. This brings us to number three, the aim. We can go with now number three, the aim. You know, finishing out verse two, back in the introduction. He says, Paul, he says, grace to you and peace from God, our father. Saw that this morning. It's not surprising. This was his standard greeting. He wishes grace and peace on them, both of which flow from God, our father through the work of Christ. And this letter is indeed going to share the grace and peace of God to them. But by way of introduction, we can springboard from this and explore further that the specific aim of Colossians. 
This is a good time to introduce to you what's called the Colossian heresy. The Colossian heresy. And what's that? Well, that's just a term we give to some false teaching that was stirring in, in the church or around the church. We don't have a better term because, well, Paul does not specifically label it or address it. We don't know too much about it. Evidently, it was above Epaphras' pay grade, and he needed Paul's help to deal with it and address it. But we only know so much. Paul does not address it or identify it explicitly. Everything we know about this comes from Paul's writings in Colossians. So it's kind of like you're listening to someone else on the phone, and they're talking to someone else, and you're trying to figure out like what the conversation is about. You can only hear one side of the conversation You're trying to get to the bottom of it. That's like Colossians. We're trying to figure out, just based on what Paul has to say in response, what was going on? What was this issue? We can identify certain key elements. Look at chapter 2, verse 2. He says in chapter 2, verse 2, that he wants them to come to the full assurance of understanding, resulting in the true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He says in verse 4, I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. And we see here and throughout that this false teaching was diminishing Christ. I mean, do you want wisdom and knowledge? Well, you know, Christ is not enough for that. You need something more. Now look at chapter 2, verse 8. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. You know, we don't get the sense that these false teachers outright denied Christ, but they did diminish him. And for sure, they denied the deity of Christ. That allows Paul to put the full deity of Christ on display in Colossians, like chapter 2, verse 9, where he says, in him all the... the In him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. That's pretty clear. But it seems their main point was that Christ is not sufficient to give you a complete or full spiritual experience. Wisdom, knowledge, enlightenment. You're not going to find that in Christ. He's not enough. You need more. Instead, these false teachers, 2, 18, were characterized by pride He says they're puffed up by visions they claim to have seen. They've seen things. They've got some secret knowledge here. They know things. And so if you want to enter into the fullness of spiritual blessing, you need to go to them. You need to to listen to their worldview, their philosophy. Other characteristics include angel worship, verse 18, asceticism and self-abasement, chapter 2, verse 23, and, and the type of legalism which confused rules with spiritual growth. In fact, relatedly, what makes this false teaching even more unique, it has a distinctive Jewish flavor. Look now at chapter 2, verse 16, just by way of introduction. He says, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink, or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are mere shadows of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. These are distinctively Jewish practices, especially the Sabbath. 
And further, Paul's teaching on their true circumcision in Christ in verse 11 makes pretty clear, like these are some Jewish concerns he's addressing. So it leads us to wonder, like, what's he dealing with here? Is this like a Greek philosophy? Is it just a Jewish background or, or what? And some have postulated it was both. A type of syncretistic blend of Jewish thinking and Greek philosophy. And I think that makes sense. I think primarily we have a Jewish sect who had assimilated Greek beliefs into their practice. And the fact that Paul refers to this as a philosophy is, is no problem where, you know, Josephus is an ancient Jewish historian. He used that same word to refer to these different flavors of Judaism throughout the Roman Empire. And the Jews who were scattered were known for just assimilating Greek and Roman practices into their worship. So I think that's what we have here. And if anyone was going to be badgering these new Christians in Colossae and, and challenging the sufficiency of Christ, it's going to be Jews. Most definitely, they would take offense at these Gentiles who, who claim to have a greater hope and that they've come into the fullness of knowledge and wisdom in Christ. Now, I don't think so, they would be thinking. So to have a, a strong Jewish background, I think, makes the most sense. One thing, however, we don't need to do is blow the Colossian heresy out of proportion. Because in the end, Paul does not directly identify them, nor deal with them head on. In his other letters, he names names. He, he takes on false teaching head on, but not in Colossians. He doesn't do that. And that's because this threat is still on the horizon. And the Colossian church, they, they've not fallen for this yet. They were, they were a good church. He affirms them in chapter 2, verse 6. He says he's rejoicing to see their good discipline and the stability of their faith in Christ. You know, they weren't like the Galatians. They were firm in the faith. And so instead, Paul is writing here to curb the influence of any false teaching in advance, that they would remain steadfast. So what you really have in Colossians is this positive picture of the sufficiency of Christ, that Jesus really is sufficient for all matters of, of life, of sanctification, salvation, just spiritual living. He, he's the answer. And this is what makes Colossians really extra special. Now, Christ is on display in every book of the Bible, but here we get this powerful portrayal of the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. Colossians is like a, a broadside blast of spiritual truth saying, you know, Christ is enough. He's more than enough for your life, for your needs. And Paul is just firing on all barrels, showing Jesus is supreme. And he should have a supreme place in your life. You should not, therefore, be like an afterthought, where the only time you really think about Christ in your life is maybe on a Sunday morning. And he should have first place in all things in your life. In fact, I want to do this. We have time. I want to take you on a little quick survey of Colossians itself. I just want you to see how overwhelmingly Christ-saturated this little letter is. It might take a little time, but it'll challenge you to follow along. I'm just going to straight up rattle through verse references here that show you just, this is an overwhelming picture of Christ in Colossians. If you want to follow along, try and keep up. Chapter 1, verse 4, Jesus is the object of faith. 
1 verse 10. The goal of life is to please Christ in all respects. Chapter 1 verse 11. Christ's glorious might strengthens us with all power. One thirteen, Jesus is the king of God's kingdom. And in him we have redemption and forgiveness. One fifteen, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. One sixteen, by Jesus all things were created. Whether on heaven or earth. All things were created through him and for him. One seventeen, Christ is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. 118, Christ is the head of the body, the church. Christ is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he will have first place in everything. 119, all the fullness of God dwells in Jesus. 120, in Jesus, God has reconciled all things to himself, making peace through his blood. 122, Jesus has reconciled you in his death in order to present you holy and blameless. 127, the mystery of Christ in you, the hope of glory, has now been revealed. 128, now the goal of Christian ministry is to present every person complete in Christ. 129, Jesus provides the power to accomplish this. That's just chapter 1. I'm going to keep going. Chapter 2, verse 2. Jesus is the true knowledge of God's mystery. Chapter 2, verse 3. In Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. 2 verse 6, Jesus is Lord, so walk in him. 2 7, we are to be rooted in Christ, then built up in Christ. 2 8, we are to be held captive by nothing but Christ. 2 9, in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. 2 10, in Christ, you've been made complete. Christ is the head over all rule and authority. 2 11, in Christ, you were spiritually circumcised. 2.12, you were buried with Christ in baptism too and raised up with him. 2.13, you were made alive together with Christ, forgiven of all your sins. 2.14, all our transgressions were taken away, nailed to his cross. 2.15, Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities, triumphing over them. 2.17, Jesus is the substance of all the Old Testament. 2.19, Jesus is the head from which the entire body is supplied and grows. 2.20, with Christ, we have died to the elementary principles of the world. Chapter 3, verse 1, we have been raised up with Christ and should uh, seek things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Chapter 3, verse 3, we have died and our life is hidden with Christ in God. 3.4, Christ is our life. When he is revealed, we will be glorified. We should live like that now, putting off the old self. 3.10, put on the new self, who is being renewed to Christ's image. 3.11, in Christ, there's no distinction. All are one in him. 3.13, just as Jesus forgave us, we should forgive others. 3.15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts and be thankful. 3.16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. 3.17, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. 3.18 and following, wives, husbands, children, fathers, slaves, masters, do all things to be pleasing to the Lord Jesus. 3.24, it is the Lord Jesus Christ whom you serve. 4.1, Christ is your master in heaven. 4.3, 
Paul's mission is to speak forth the mystery of Christ. In the rest of chapter 4, Paul lists his fellow slaves of Christ, all those who have given over their lives to do just that. That's enough. I don't do that all the time, but look, I wanted you to see it, and it's laborsome, but you, now you've seen, you've tasted a little bit and seen. This is a Christ-saturated letter, almost every verse. He has something to say about Christ and us. He's talking to us and how Christ matters to our lives. All this goes to show that Christ really is supreme and he's sufficient. These false teachers were painting this ritualistic, ascetic, legalistic picture of spiritual growth and maturity. But that's false. And that real maturity comes in Christ. He's all you need. You cannot detach from the head. What body can grow apart from the head? That in him, all the fullness of the new spiritual life we're meant to have flows. So if you live your life and, you know, six and a half days of the week, you're essentially detached from the head. Well, do you wonder why you're still maybe spiritually immature? You haven't grown and developed. You've been detached from the head. Anyway, Colossians is this amazing expose of true spiritual maturity in Christ. Christianity is not just like some new religion with a new set of rules to follow. It is primarily, like Paul says here, a walk with Christ or a walk in Christ. A walk in which we are made to grow. A walk which God uses to conform us to the image of his son. So let's just say that in the weeks and months to come, we're going to learn a lot about Christ. That he would come to have first place in everything in our lives. He's not just your ticket out of hell. He's also the source of a full, blessed, and mature life right now. Now, some of you may have been in the church 30 years. You've never heard any of this. You still know very little about the faith, and your practice isn't much better. And so you bear in your life some of the harsh consequences that attend spiritual immaturity, and it makes life hard. And that is very tragic. But I want you to know that this does not mean Christ has failed you. You need to know he really is sufficient for you to change. And hey, today can be the day. Whatever path you took to get here, so be it. But let today be the day where you resolve, I'm not going to waste any more time. I'm not going to waste any more years of just kind of floating along in this Christian life. It's time to figure things out. What are these treasures of wisdom and knowledge in Christ? Like, what are those? How do I get those? How, how do I change? Who is, who is Christ? What is he about? What is this Christian life about? How am I meant to grow? How am I meant to change? Is it time to figure things out? And there is a better way. It's the way of a full life in Christ, and we need to learn about it. And we all need to be convinced that Christ is sufficient for all of our spiritual needs. And so as as we go through Colossians, it's going to be time for all of us to grow up a little bit more. But that's a good thing. 
There may be some growing pains, sure, but immaturity leads to just greater blessing and peace in life. And so I pray that our time together through Colossians becomes for you, as you are built up in the knowledge of him, this becomes for you a season of growth, an unparalleled season of spiritual growth that leads to the harvest of peace and joy and blessing in life now as we live for Christ in the world to come. Let's pray. Our great God in heaven, we, we magnify your name and we do that through your son, Jesus Christ. He's Lord. He's Savior. He's supreme and he's sufficient. He's the image of God. He's the firstborn from the dead. He is our life in more ways than one. Lord, we need our eyes open to the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. We come to salvation. We believe in Jesus. We know so little. That's okay. We all start as infants. But how desperately we need to grow. And so much of that comes by just knowing Christ in whom are hidden all these treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We need him. We need his word that we might grow into his image. And no matter where we are today, whether years have gone by and we haven't grown or, or whether we're a new Christian, Lord, all that matters is today. And may we all just come together and resolve. We're going to seek Christ anew today. Life can still change. There's so much hope in Christ for change, for growth, and for a blessed life that honors you. But it's not going to be found apart from Christ. So this morning, I pray you are already in our hearts showing Christ is supreme. And that we, we, we start to develop an appetite for him. We, we just need more of the Savior in our lives. But that we will grow. You will be glorified. We'll be blessed. This is the better way. Lead us, Lord, in the way of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.